Good to have you all here. We have been in Malachi 12 weeks. This is week 13, and we're finishing the book tonight. The question forms the title of the teaching. How would you finish the Old Testament? Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But as for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. We looked at some of those words. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Quote, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You have this blending of things blessed and things fearful in the coming of the Lord, the comings, because they, of course, were looking forward to the first coming of Jesus, though they probably they had an awful hard time because they pictured the second coming of Jesus and the first coming of Jesus. Rome should be defeated. Israel should be liberated. Their oppressors should have their backs broken. And they couldn't figure out why when Jesus came, we'll look at it in a minute, there was this gentleness, this compassion. Why wasn't he, why wasn't he overthrowing their enemies? We, of course, have a different problem. We look back to the coming of the Lord, and it's hard for us to picture the next coming of the Lord in very different, drastic terms. So there's this fulfillment in phases that you're going to confront in tonight's teaching. Since man's first disobedience in the Garden of Eden, the prophecies about a coming Redeemer had been given, one who would finally be the seed of a woman who would crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. And quite simply, that's what the Bible is about. That's what the book is about. It's the unfolding of God's plan to send a Savior who would come first redemptively and would come second in judgment to rule and reign. And all of the events of Scripture have their ultimate meaning in their preparation of people to expect God's salvation and to be ready when he finally came. In our text... The days of prophecy and preparation are about to come to an end. God would sign off in ways that would be striking to them. God was going to sign off and be silent for the next 400 years. That's a long time 
No prophets arising. No word from the Lord. Nothing. Silence. How does he sign off? What does he say that we need to remember? That's what I want to look at for a little while tonight. So point number one. To help people prepare for the Redeemer, there's an immediate forerunner to the Redeemer who is kind of pinpointed and announced. You see that in chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. There'd be somebody who would come first. We can see very specifically how that gets fulfilled in the New Testament. We're told, get this, we're told how an angel, how Gabriel saw the fulfillment of those words from the prophet Malachi. Luke 1, 11 to 17. Are those in your notes? Okay. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Okay, so it's, it's kind of special having an angel announce it, but there's nothing particularly striking so far. 14. You will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. 15, he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink strong wine or strong drink, and he will be filled from the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and then listen to these words. This is the angel speaking. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Just pause, look back again at not at Malachi 4 or 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Okay? Now here's the angel. Luke 1, 17. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Or look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 13, 14, 15. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come, Jesus says. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus addressed a group of people who couldn't believe that God would use a scruffy, backwoods messenger like John the Baptist to prepare the way of the Messiah. Made no sense. And Jesus reminds them that just like Elijah, just like Elijah, John wasn't geared to the refined sensibilities of the religious establishment. That just like Elijah, John the Baptist came to just came to turn everything upside down, to set everything on their heads, to jolt people into awareness of their sin, their need for repentance, the need for the coming one. We need that kind of reminder. It's good that Elijah comes first and John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah. There's a lot for us to think about. People who look for involvement in 
institutional religion rather than the promised redeemer for their standing before God. John just makes it so clear that it wasn't just a matter of cruising around the temple and offering sacrifices and having Abraham as your ancestor. Those things were of no use in getting right for the coming redeemer. So that's still, that's still the important message from John the Baptist. The spirit of Elijah prophesied about in our text from Malachi. What John did with a stubborn, wild, and marvelously persistent passion was point people to the Redeemer. Only the Lamb of God can take away your sins. That's what John is saying. The church can't do it. No priest can do it. You can't say enough Hail Marys. You can't count enough beads on the rosary. None of that is going to do the trick. There's not a flock of redeemers. John says there's one. Get ready. Get ready. He's coming. He's your only hope. You you, kind of sense the urgency in these words in the book of Malachi. The people had this history of ignoring all that God said. Look at that verse 7 of chapter 3 where God speaks through the prophet. From the days of your fathers. So this is a long-standing thing. You've turned aside from my statutes. You've not kept them. Not even for a little while. And yet you see the patience of God when he says, not going to be any more prophets. Not going to be any more messengers. This is it. Except one. He's going to come on the scene just like Elijah. Make sure you don't miss what he's pointing to. Everything rides on your response. So point number two. We have this marvelous picture, almost too good for words, about the kind of work the Redeemer will do in the hearts of people. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Look at those words, turn turn the hearts. I mean, we all know, we all know from reading our Bibles that it's that's where the problem, our hearts, deceptive. Desperately wicked, the prophet says. That's your heart. That's my heart. I saw a book. You don't see the title very often. I liked it because it's so opposite to the world's counsel. It's a good book, and it's called Whatever You Do, Don't Follow Your Heart. Everybody tells everybody to follow their heart. Be very careful with that. Your heart's deceitful and desperately wicked. These verses also relate to the work of God. He's going to come and change people's hearts, fatherhood, children. This is the prophet's hope. There's got to be people there thinking, Pastor Don, done all the right things to get the things of God into my kids' life, brought them to church, brought them to Christian education, brought them to Sunday night church, explained the scriptures, prayed with them, taught them to seek God, tried to give a good example. I've done all those things, and my kids are far from God. And, and 
There's something else in this text. What you can't do, God can do. There's a work that he can still do in the heart. Find hope in that. Doesn't mean God's done with those hearts yet. He can make a change that we can't make. Never lose faith. Never lose trust. Point number three. The son of righteousness will come, apparently both with healing and a consuming fire. What are we going to do with these words? They're hard words. I'm looking at four, one, and two. For behold, the day is coming, burnt, burning like an oven. Okay, that's a phrase for one thing. When, when all the arrogant, those are people that won't submit, and the evildoers, look what it says. They're going to be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his... Now, there's such a huge difference healing in his wings, burning like an oven. Do you see the, the contrast there? People who are unresponsive, arrogant, who refuse to look to the son of righteousness, they should dread the day. For those who submit, to those who yield, to those who honor, there's this, he'll come with healing in his wings. And you'll go out leaping like calves from the stall. There's always a trick to understand the timing of a lot of passages when you're reading the prophets. Exactly what coming of Jesus is being described in those words. So many of the ideas in these verses, they seem to be describing his first coming. That's certainly the coming for which John the Baptist was the forerunner, the birth of Jesus, his coming into this world his life here on earth. But what about those verses that talk about a day when, for one, all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble? I mean, that doesn't, it didn't happen when Jesus came. It still hasn't happened. Even John, even John the Baptist found himself in the middle of confusion, trying to figure out these prophetic words. It's in Matthew 11. You know this story. Matthew 11, 1 to 6. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, so he's heard about the deeds of Christ. He sent word to his disciples, by his disciples, sorry, and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? That's John's. He's a godly man, and John is saying, well, wait a minute. Something doesn't seem right here. Are you the one to come? Should we look for another? Jesus says, go tell John what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. 
Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now here's the thing. So here's the blind receive their sight, right? The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. But John, John had just, had just warned about the coming of Jesus with this winnowing fork in his hand. You can read about it, Matthew 3, 10 and 11, burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so Jesus comes. What's he do? Well, he's got healing and message for the poor, and blessing, and they have the good news preached to them. The dead are raised. John's in prison. And he's going, wait a minute. That this burning up the chaff and the fire and what gives? And that and he's are, are you the one? Maybe this hold it, maybe there's somebody else. And that's John the Baptist. John's in prison. All that chaff that he talked about, they're upstairs partying, and they're gonna behead John in just a few minutes. No wonder, he says, maybe we should look for someone else. How are we going to understand these closing words of Malachi? And I think it's best to gain our understanding from the lips of Jesus himself. In a very significant passage of Scripture, he announced his mission to the people of his day. It's in Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. Read Read these, follow along as I read these words. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogues on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. This got everybody's attention. 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place. So he's looking for a particular place. Found the place where it was written, quote, Jesus reads this out loud, talking about himself, in the temple, in the synagogue, rather. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Is this the kind of thing that Jesus said to John's disciples? Go back and tell them what you see me doing, right? It's the same kind of stuff. The recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and looked. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Everybody's going, did you see what he did? Everybody's looking at Jesus. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So the passage Jesus quoted was Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The words Jesus quoted don't complete the prophecy that Isaiah penned concerning the coming of the Messiah. It's not all Isaiah said. In fact, the very next phrase where Jesus stopped quoting 
says this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's where Jesus stopped. And Isaiah said, and the day of vengeance of our God. So the question is, how come Jesus stopped reading right in the middle of a sentence? How come he stopped reading where he stopped reading? What about John's winnowing fork and the unquenchable fire and the day of vengeance of our God? Didn't Jesus come to do that too? And he stopped reading because, yes, he did come to do that, but not yet. Not yet. There's another coming. The day of judgment would follow a marvelous window of grace and mercy and pardon, and that's where we live. Whereas nothing but incredible patience, where the rain falls on the just and the unjust, where God blesses the good and the wicked, sometimes exactly alike. First, he would come with healing in his First, he would work in softening and turning the hearts of fathers and children one to another. So do you see it? If you're away from God, well, this is your day. This is your day, and it's not going to last forever. This is the way God wraps up the Old Testament. Through his prophet Malachi, this world is told there is one more big event to watch out for. Make sure you don't miss your golden opportunity. God will speak again after a long time of grace. There would be a dawning of a different day. Right now, grace is still with us. Everything hinges on responding to God's closing words there in the Old Testament. There's either healing or a curse. That's the final warning of the Old Testament. There will come no more offers. There is marvelous mercy and pardon, and there'll be judgment for those who ignore their opportunity. So, to answer John's question, hey, where's the fire? Where's the judgment? It's found right here. Jesus came to offer healing to those who would listen, he will come again to judge with burning fire those who refuse. Notice it's that text, it's, it's almost fearful to read where it just says the arrogant, they're just going to be stubble. Stubble. So what about people who reject the sun? Jesus talked about it. He was far more honest than a lot of churches are. John 3.18 Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Not sentenced yet, condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Or John 3.36. Everyone should know John 3.36 as well as they know John 3.16. Everyone should know it. Memorize it. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains. It's not poured out. It's, it's condemned already. The wrath is there already, and it just stays there apart from Jesus Christ. 
So those who choose not to believe, well, they aren't judged yet, but they're already condemned. Their fate is sealed by their response to the Son who would, who would long to come with healing in his wings. So, just like our closing text, we too live in those shadowy days looking forward to another coming of Jesus. And just as the people of God had to be awakened to his first coming, we need to be alert to his second coming. Just live and receive and rejoice in unbelievable grace and mercy. Live like his holy bride. Make sure you know him as Savior and Lord because there will be nothing meek and nothing gentle when Jesus comes again. There will be a brand new creation and the wicked will have no part in it. They will be eternally judged and separated from God. And it's good for a church like ours to rejoice that the Son of Righteousness, even now, comes with healing in his wings. And to know that this is an era of grace that doesn't last indefinitely. And he will come again. And let's make sure we always believe and proclaim the whole truth. If the gospel is a wonderful thing to accept, it is a terrible thing to reject. Tell the world the whole truth.